you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to be diverting for a week from Ecclesiastes. We'll be picking up again with that next week when Pastor Nick returns. But today, we're going to be in, we're going to start in Romans, chapter 8, where we're going to be in several places. So, if you'd like to start there. Someone were to ask you, or if I were to ask you, what's the most dangerous spiritual responsibility to neglect? You might would think scripture reading or prayer or evangelism or what you're doing now, listening to the Word of God preached or attending corporate worship, and um, you would not be wrong. Those things are, 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 are needed, and they are spiritual responsibilities, and it is to our detriment if we neglect them. God commands all of us to pursue all these things. These are not negotiable. But there is a spiritual responsibility that I think we often overlook in our lives. It's an intimate, unpleasant, and exhausting duty. Namely, that is, killing sin in our lives. Now, maybe that's a provocative thing or wrong thing to say, and some might want to challenge it. After all, didn't we just hear that Christ, in Romans 6, delivered a crushing blow to sin? When he rose from the dead, wasn't it his job to kill sin at Calvary? Well, yes, and that was the fundamental beginning to his judgment against sin. And he did crush sin at Calvary. He removed the penalty of our sins at the cross. As Christians, you and I no longer stand accused under the righteous requirements of the law. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We see that in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. The work of Christ also removes sin's power over believers. Having been crucified with Christ, we're no longer enslaved to sin's grip. Christ rendered it powerless when He rose from the dead, as we've read. So if Christ removes sin's penalty and sin's power, what is left to kill? That is the question. Too few Christians are asking that question today. And too few pastors are bringing it to their attention. And that, but that wasn't true of the Puritan pastor John Owen. He dealt comprehensively with the question, teaching Christians from Scripture how to kill, how to kill the remaining sin in their lives. In one of his classic works, The Mortification of Sin in the Believer, There's a famous quote from Owen, and this is where the title of the sermon comes from today. He says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's right. Kill or be killed. That is our choice. And so that is my what I endeavor to do this morning, to talk about this issue of killing sin in the life of a Christian. The first thing I want to look at is that the Bible commands us to this duty. This is not optional. It is a command to do. And we start there in Romans chapter 8. We want to start there in verse 12 and 13. But I want to draw your attention again back to our reading in Romans 6. All of those privileges that we heard that come from being in Christ, that Christ has overcome our sin. He's, he's, he's destroyed our sin, or He's destroyed the penalty of sin. And so He says there in Romans 6.11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is a fundamental truth that we hold to. 
We are dead to sin. We have victory over sin in Romans chapter 6. But then we enter into Romans chapter 7 and then we read those words of Paul as he cries out in anguish. And when he says, he's talking about the law's relationship to sin and how law, how the law condemned sin and exposed sin and, and, and defined what sin was. And so then Paul, when he's looking at his life, he's, he, and, he's, and he's looking at the law and he, say, he delights in the law of God and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, the things that I know that the law tells me to do, the things that I want to do, I never do those things or I don't do those things as often as I want. But then also the things that it clearly tells me is sin, the things that I should turn away from, those are the very things that I find myself practicing. And he cries out in anguish at the end of Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And what is his answer? Praise be to Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is through Him that the answer comes. And so, Romans 6 tells us we have victory over sin. Romans 7 says that there is a struggle against sin, even in that victory. And Romans 8, Romans 8 starts off there in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul again is reiterating the same things again. But then he gets down to verse 12. And he says, so then, brothers, so then, why does he say so then? Based on all the things that he's taught us up to this point, especially in Romans 6 and 7 as it pertains to sin, he says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And here's what I want to key in. And this is the verse, verse 13, that, that drove Owen to say the thing, to write this uh, this book that he wrote about the mortification of, of sin and believers, he says in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a contrast there. A crossroads to, to, to navigate. He says, if we live according to the flesh, we're going to die. We're, but we no longer live according to the flesh. But if we live, we're no longer in the flesh, but sometimes we are, we are tempted to live according to the flesh. And so, but he says we will die. Those of us who make a pattern of their life, who live according to the flesh, they die. But here's the kicker. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. You see there's a command there for us. There's an instruction and a command, an imperative, that we put to death. But wait a minute, isn't it already dead? Didn't Christ kill it on the cross? What did we say a while ago? He killed the he just, he took away the penalty of our sins, right? And he's also taken away the power of our of the sin that's still in our lives. But we know again, as Paul tells us in Romans seven, sin has not been completely vanquished. We are not yet there. The remnants of sin, sin, that old man that's still uh, a part of us, is still there crying out to be fulfilled, to be fed. But he says, if we put by the Spirit, if we put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This command that the Bible tells us about something that we must do. It is imperative that we do this in order to have a victorious Christian life, that we slay the remnants of sin in our life. We see this in other parts of the Bible, in many places of the Bible. <clears throat> but I want to key in a... Again, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is your life, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There's some theological truths that Paul is laying down for us in those first four verses. But then he says again, just the same pattern he follows in Romans. He says in verse five, "Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness." which is idolatry. Paul says, put it to death. Kill it. We see the very same thing, and we know that this is where Paul gets this understanding from, from his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us this very thing. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says these words. And if your hand, Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. These are strong words. We've read these words before. But Jesus is teaching us a fundamental truth that we must not ignore. Because as He says here, our very eternal destiny depends on whether we do or do not do this. He taught us this again in another place earlier than he's talking about in Mark 9 in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says the same thing, but he adds something else to it that I think is critical. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? What's the significance of that? Why did he, why did he say right hand? Why not? Why did he say, if your appendix causes you to sin, cut it out? Or your little toe, if it causes you to sin, cut it out. What's significant about those two members of our body? We can do with or without them, right? It's not that big of a deal. If I get my appendix taken out, I'm fine. I can do with or without it. My little toe, it might, if I get it cut off, it might cause me some discomfort at first, but I'll learn to live with it. It's no big deal. But if my right, and I'm right-handed, how many of us are right-handed? Most, I think most people are right-handed. And if you're left-handed, right over that, if your left hand causes you to sin, or your left foot, most people are not left-footed or right-footed, but you get to see what he's saying is that that thing, that hand that you use so much during the day, if that causes you to sin, cut it off. If that right foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If that right eye... And again, what does our hand, foot, and eye represent? Our hands represent what? The things that we do, right? Things that we do, that we're involved in on a day-to-day basis. What about our feet? These are what take us where we go, right? We need these to get to the places that we do, to do the things that we do. And our eyes, what do they do? This is the... the The windows to the soul, right? The Bible says the things that we see come through our eyes. And so these are crucial things in our life. 
And so what Jesus is telling us here is that these, these are not just things that you can, can, can let go or not let go, and it's really not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a sacrifice. He's saying these, these are the sins that are, can I say it this way, are precious to us. Now that sounds weird, right, to say, for somebody to say our sins are precious to us. But you all can relate to that fact that there are some things in your life that you just you yearn to do. You know they're wrong. And to overcome them is very difficult. So that tells you that they're precious to you. Now, you would never stand up and say that, but your very actions dictate that they're precious to you. They're hard to overcome. And Christ is not telling us here in these verses to keep an eye on it. If your right eye causes you to sin, keep an eye on it. Just just log it. Keep Keep a log of it. Watch out for it. He doesn't tell us to be suspicious of it or to try to work with it or tame it. What does He tell us? He says, get radical. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Kill it. Cut it off. There is no taming it. There is no working with it. This is the way we must approach sin. It's commanded in the Bible. And this is just a portion of the Scriptures in the New Testament that dictate, that tell us about the importance of this spiritual responsibility of taking radical steps to cut off the sin, to kill the sin that remains in our lives. Let me talk about it from another angle, the necessity of killing sin. I invite you to turn back, hold your hand here, but turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I heard a sermon many years ago by John MacArthur called Hacking Agag to Pieces. I don't know if some of you may have heard it. But he used this text, this story that we're going to look at here, to illustrate a very important point about the necessity of killing sin in our life. In Romans, or in 1 Samuel chapter 15, what's going on here? Starting in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Let's stop there for a minute. That's, God is telling him something very radical to do here. He's telling him, he's telling the people of Israel to destroy an entire people group, the Amalekites. Now these were not some joyful people. If we go back to Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17, we see an instance whenever the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, and these people, the Amalekites, attacked the Israelites from the rear of all places and wreaked much havoc against them. And if you remember this, if any of you read that, this is the battle whenever Moses, whenever he would hold his arms up, they would win, and whenever his arms would droop, they would begin to lose. And so he had two men stand beside him holding his arms up when they got tired so that they could win the battle. But during that time, God told Moses, because of the actions of the Amalekites, I am going to wipe them out 
from existence. I am going to blot out their memory in heaven, under heaven. And so God is telling, uh, through the prophet Samuel, He's telling Saul, the king, that this is the time. Here we are facing again the Malachites, and you must devote them to destruction. <coughs> and so we see there in verse 4, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and tell him, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, well actually let's skip down to verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So, so far so good. Saul is, is doing exactly what the Lord has commanded him to do through the prophet, to kill these Amalekites. And so he's, he, he's, he's being obedient. Then we see in verse 8, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Now things begin to turn to the bad. Saul decides to hold back King Agag instead of devoting him to destruction along with the rest of the Amalekites as he has been commanded to do. And some of his soldiers are doing the very same thing there. They've been told to destroy everything. Everything that belongs to the Amalekites, they destroy. But we see that Saul begins to pull back a little bit from his mandate. Then we see in verse 10, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul, come to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, or Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. This is Saul saying, I have done what you've said. And Samuel said, and this, I've always found this verse funny, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? <laughs> he couldn't get his spoils to keep quiet under the covers that he was trying to hide, apparently. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So Saul comes up with his own plan. We're going to keep back some of the spoils, even though God clearly said don't do it. We're going to do it, and it's a good thing that we're going to do it because we're going to use it to sacrifice to the Lord and to worship to Him. So so what's the big deal? But But God is furious. And then he goes on down. He says, uh, "The Lord does not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. Is better to behold to obey is better than to sacrifice." So God straightens out Saul's misunderstanding, and so he and we go and we know that this goes on. This is the beginning of the end for Saul. He removes the kingdom from him, and then David comes on the scene later. And so Saul or Samuel rebukes Saul. But then we look down at verse 30, 32. And this is what I want to key in on. It says, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Agal. And you see, you get a picture of what he's doing here? 
he hacked him to pieces with a sword. Saul spared him because he wanted to be to parade him in front of all of his people as what the great king he was. But Samuel, being the obedient prophet he is, is following the Lord's command. He destroys Agag and kills Agag. But here's where the problem, and here's what MacArthur was doing with this as he tries to illustrate this principle of killing sin in our lives. If we look, if we flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 30, we see something later in the life of Israel. And now David has come on the scene, and we see, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. What? The Amalekites, you see? And David goes on to have his some of his wives taken captive. And so these Amalekites who were supposed to be destroyed way back in the day of Saul were allowed, some of them were allowed to get away. And what do they do? Did they make peace and say, wow, I, I, I made it through that first time of possible death. I'm just going to chill for the rest of my life. No. Just a few years later, they're back wreaking havoc upon the Jews. And then several hundred years later, we see another episode in the time of Esther. You remember Esther uh, became queen. And there was this one fellow named Haman who, had, who plotted this evil plot to destroy the Jewish people. And Mordecai and Esther caught wind of it. And we all know what happened to Haman. But Haman, do you know what he was? He was called Haman the Agagite. He's an Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag. And so what does this tell us? Let me, let, me, let, me, let, me tell, let me just say what MacArthur says at the end of his message. He says, When Agag comes to you cheerfully and says, Surely the, the bitterness of death is past, which is another way of saying, Well, the war is over. You're saved. You're on your way. I'm defeated. And don't worry about me. When Agag and his Amalekite friends want to make friends with you and declare an end to hostilities, that's when you grab your sword and hack them to pieces. You see what he's illustrating there? They didn't follow the, uh, the commands of the Lord. They allowed some of the Amalekites to live, and later on, they wreaked havoc on them again. That's a perfect illustration of sin in our lives. When sin comes to us like Agag and says, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Don't worry about me. Things are going to be fine. You're in the kingdom. Things are good between us. I'm not going to bother you. What is that? It's a lie. Because their only intention is to do evil. The Amalekites and their only intention of the sin in our life is to do evil. As believers, indwelling sin continues to trouble us, but God calls us to treat that remaining sin like Saul, or like Samuel rather, treated Agag. We're to kill it. Be brutal about it. It's not an option. The necessity of it is clear. It is not going to make peace with you. This is not something that you can carry along with you on your progress through the Christian life and say, because I'm saved, once saved, always saved, there's no chance of losing my salvation, which is true. But the issue of whether or not we take seriously this idea of killing sin in our lives has a lot to say about the condition of our heart, and we're going to talk about that some more. And so the necessity is very clear, and this is a good illustration to see that the proper way to approach this is not the way Saul did. Not to make friends with it. Not to try to parade it or just control it. Keep it on a leash. 
The proper way to approach it is the way Samuel did, by taking out his sword and hacking it to pieces. But how do we do that? That's a large, that's something hard to do, isn't it? How do we kill sin in our lives? I've got a few things to suggest this morning or to put before you. First, I think, and this is the, 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 probably one of the most important things, that we must understand our true positions as Christians. We must understand that. This is a call to think biblically about the way you relate to sin. If you miss this vital first step, and the rest will be nothing but a self-improvement exercise. Study the Bible carefully and you'll notice that Scripture rarely calls you to practice a specific behavior without first laying down some kind of theological foundation or framework. We see that in Romans. The first twelve chap- or first 11 chapters of Romans deals with uh, theology, uh, truths about salvation that are, that are clear. And then Paul lays out in the last four chapters, based on all that, this is what you're to do. We see the same thing in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. Practice follows position. Application flows out of sound theology. That's what you see as Paul develops the doctrine of mortification in the book of Romans. Before you learn anything about the struggle you face as a Christian, before you hear the call to put that sin to death, you first learn how you should view sin. And this is what we heard in Romans chapter 6. When he says in verse 6 and 7 that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Believe that. That's true. Paul's argument here, he has a major premise that all of those who die with Christ are free from sin. And so the minor premise is that you have died with Christ, thus you are free from sin. Free from sin. Let that truth settle in your mind this morning. Christ triumphant is triumphed over your sin, and because of your union with Him, His victory becomes your victory. That's the reason you see this phrase, with Christ, throughout this entire section, throughout Romans chapter 6 specifically. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. With Christ means you were united with Him, and in Christ you have participated in everything that He has accomplished. The extent of your freedom becomes clear in Romans 6.11, when he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider that. Believe it to be true. Don't miss this powerful point here. It has huge implications on how we fight against sin. You are free from sin. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so let me ask you this question. What difference does this perspective make when sin ambushes you, when sin comes along and tempts you and draws you in? What difference does this understanding make? Do you think it would be to your advantage at the moment of temptation to see yourself as free from sin? What power does a dead, defeated enemy have over you? I hope you can see how that makes all the difference in the world. That's why Paul continues in verse 12. They're saying, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Sin is a conquered foe. Don't let it return to power in your life. It's conquered. It's dead. 
That's the vital first, first step to slaying sin in our lives. Don't give sin any power. By God's grace, by the power of the Spirit who indwells you, you call the shots in your life. That's key. You choose what you will and will not think about. You are not a victim. So many people today, when they get themselves in trouble, they want to blame others. They want to blame their circumstances. Everything to look outside of us to say that we are victims. It's rampant today in this, this, victim, this victim mindset that we have. But you might say, why does sin seem so strong? If it's, if it's dead, why is it so strong? <coughs> I maintain that it's because you and I have become accustomed to thinking like captives rather than victors. You've been used to thinking like a slave of sin rather than a slave of Christ and of righteousness. If you understand who you really are in Christ, you undermine sin's ability to deceive you and to gain a foothold in your life. You were once enslaved to sin, as I was. It owned and controlled us, right? It owned us. But now, because of Christ, you and I are free from it and are dead to it. He purchased you out of the slave market of sin and made you a slave of Himself. You are now in Christ. That's your position as a Christian. Understand it, enjoy it, and live it because it is a crucial step. That is the first step of killing sin in our lives is to to understand who we are as Christians. The second thing that we must do is we must weaken sinful habits and strengthen righteous behavior. (laughs) Imagine that if you're facing an enemy on the battlefield who enjoyed a good night's sleep, a hearty breakfast, and a personal escort to the most strategic point on the battlefield. That would be pretty good for, for that enemy, right? But here's the worst part. You provided all those things. You provided a, a hearty breakfast and a good night's sleep and a, a strategic um, escort to the most strategic position on the battlefield. It sounds absurd, doesn't it? We would never do that for our enemy if we're in battle. We would never do that. No one would do that. It would be lunacy. But think about it. Isn't it true that so often instead of weakening sin by cutting off all provision, we strengthen and empower sin by giving it occasion to take root and to grow strong. We do those things. But notice how Scripture addresses that attitude. In Romans 13, 14, it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Did you catch that important command? Make no provision. Don't feed and strengthen it. Starve it out. Weaken it. Keep it in an anemic state, subjected to a slow, debilitating death by removing its strength and vitality. You must cut off all supported provision for sin as if you were laying siege to a castle. In ancient warfare, an invading army would surround a castle and cut off all supply of food, water, and reinforcements and means of escape. And then the troops would settle down and just wait on the inhabitants to either surrender or die. This victory by attrition. It was an effective strategy and a great example of how you should lay siege on indwelling sin. 
An enemy without strength will soon be a defeated enemy. A malnourished sinful habit will soon die. Count on it. Richard Baxter once said, Lay siege to your sins and starve them out by keeping away the food and fuel which is their maintenance and life. The idea is to wear down and weaken your sinful habits to keep them in a perpetual state of death. John Owen used the language of crucifixion to make that point. He compared killing sin to impaling a man on a cross. That's a gruesome way to look at it, but it's true. He first struggles, he says, and strives and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste, his strivings are faint and seldom, his cries low and hoarse, Scarce to be heard, sin may have sometimes a dying pain that, make, pain that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it is quickly over, especially if it be kept from considerable success. End quote. As a Christian, you have that power over sin. You can weaken and kill it, and the Bible shows, you, shows us how to do that. Search carefully, and you'll notice how some of the most practical chapters in the New Testament command you to put off, lay aside, abstain from, do away with a sinful, corrupt behavior. Much like you would take off old, worn-out clothes and put on brand new ones. It tells us to put off, but it also tells us not to stop there. That's only half the battle. And that's not the most important part of the battle. The next part is important. He says, put on... But now you also put all, put in um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, But now you also put them all aside, anger and wrath, malice, slander, and abusive behavior from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you lay aside the old self with his evil practices, and have put on the new self, which is, which is being renewed, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. <laughs> it's practical and specific. Lay aside your old manner of life, and adopt behavior consistent with your new nature. You put it on. Put off the old and put on the new. Weaken old sinful habits and cultivate righteous, godly behavior. Notice how the Word of God not only tells us, tells us what sinful habits we're to put off, it also goes further in some of these is to tell us what righteous behavior we should put in its place. He says, replace lying with truth-telling. We put off and replace stealing with working. We replace hatred with what? Love. Replace bitterness with forgiveness. We replace and put off pride and put on humility. We replace harshness with gentleness. We replace coldness with compassion. If you read those sections carefully, you'll notice how the message moves from what God has done for you in Christ to what you have been empowered to do for Christ. The power to choose which behavior you wear rests with you. But it is, a, it is something that's crucial to our very existence, our very victory over sin, is that we identify these areas of sinful behavior, habits that we have. And they're habits that we have, we have grown in our lives from many years of practice, right? We must identify them, we must slay them and kill them, but if we don't replace them with something, what will happen? They will return. They will come back. We must replace them with righteous behavior. <coughs> so that's the second step. Another thing that we do 
in our battle against sin is to fill our minds with Scripture. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote in the cover of his Bible, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Bunyan understood what many in the war against sin don't is that the Word of God is the weapon you simply cannot neglect. You cannot. Have you ever considered some of the symbols the Bible uses to describe itself? It's called light. It's called a hammer. It's called fire. It's called rock, a mirror. It's called milk. It's called seed. And it's called water. Each highlights a unique characteristics of God's Word, but by far the most memorable metaphor of the Bible in the, is, is that of a sword. Why is that? Because God's Word is sharp and able to penetrate effectively through very thick layers of sin and hypocrisy in the life of a believer. It can effort, effortlessly slice through soul and spirit, laying bare the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It serves dual purposes in battles. It deflects blows from our enemies, but then we are able to inflict wounds ourselves on our enemies. As you handle God's Word and experience more of its power, both your skill and confidence in the use of God's Word will naturally increase. Here's one more you may not have considered. In the Bible, a sword often symbolizes also execution. It's an instrument of death, a killing device. Before the electric chair or the gas chamber or lethal injection, governments would use a sword to carry out a death sentence. The imagery is very powerful. If you want to carry out the death sentence on your sin, you need God's help. You need to lay aside your puny, inadequate human weapons and take up the power of God's mighty sword of the Spirit. Remember, this battle is spiritual, and you can only kill sin by the power of the Spirit. We saw that in Romans 8.13. It's only by the Spirit that we're able to accomplish this. You're no match for sin in and of yourselves, but sin is also no match for the Holy Spirit. Praise God. God's Word is sufficient to the task. It's the greatest spiritual resource that you and I have. And it boasts of an utterly unique identity. The Holy Spirit authors it. He empowers it. He interprets it. Scripture is your quintessential spiritual weapon forged by God Himself. And since God's Word is the single most powerful weapon you possess, to to neglect or ignore it is utterly absurd. William Gurnell, in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, says, A pilot without his chart, a scholar without his book, and a soldier without his sword are alike ridiculous. But above all these, it is absurd for one to think of being a Christian without knowledge of the Word of God and some skill to use this weapon. End quote. Consider the central role of God's Word that God's Word must play in the life of the godly. The psalmist we see the book of Psalms begin in Psalm 1. What contrasting the godly man with the ungodly, and we see what does it that sets them apart. He says, consider the godly man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. That's what Psalm 1 says about the godly. And what does it say about the ungodly? The ungodly are not so. They are like chaff. They're going to be blown away in the wind. And they're not going to survive. Here are some other familiar verses from Psalms. How can a young man keep his way pure? What a great question for young men and women and all of us to be asking ourselves. How can we keep our way pure? By keeping it according to your word. 
Psalm 119.9. And of course, Psalm 119.11 that we all should know, Your word I have treasured and hidden in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. The word is powerful. So the question is, does that describe your life? Are you firmly planted? Is your way pure? Delighting in, meditating upon, treasuring up and keeping God's word are what separate those who are killing sin from those who are being killed by it. John MacArthur says in his commentary in Ephesians, he says, no believer has an excuse for not knowing and understanding God's word. Every believer has God's own Holy Spirit within him as his own divine teacher of God's divine word. Our only task is to submit to his instruction by studying the word with sincerity and commitment. This is key. Listen to this last point. We cannot plead ignorance or inability. Only disinterest and neglect. End quote. You can't escape the New Testament's various charges to be saturating your mind with the Word of God. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you. Like newborn babes, long for the milk of the Word so that it may grow up into sal- with respect to salvation. It says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What do these all say? The importance of the Word of God in, the, in, our, in our ability to slay the sin in our life. Scripture is the only thing that is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's the hammer that smashes rocky hearts. It's the fire that purifies tainted motives. We must unleash Scripture on our sins. Because it will search and destroy that sin. So let's, let God's Word fill, enrich, renew, and control your thinking. Or let sin do it. Either way. Either Scripture will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from Scripture. And finally, what do we do to kill sin? We must prepare for battle. We must prepare for battle. Now that you understand the nature and strategy of your enemy, prepare for its attacks. That means you anticipate ambushes. Think like a soldier. Train yourself for battle. And select your comrades very carefully. Along those lines, here are some practical ways that we do that. The first that we do is that we watch and pray. In war, failing to post guards is costly and often deadly. An army needs a lookout. Someone dependable to watch out for approaching danger, to notify the troops, call for reinforcements. He stands watch while others eat and sleep. He remains alert. He's the first to detect the invasion and sound the alarm. And if he fails in his task, lives will be lost. As a Christian, your lifestyle closely parallels that of a, of a soldier engaged in combat. First, we're to be watchful. That means you're to walk carefully, staying clear of landmines and remaining alert for approaching danger. We do not put ourselves in positions where we're going to be tempted or or pulled into sin. You never lose your sense of direction or forget the closeness of your enemy. Your enemy is always where? Right there before you. And he also within you. As a good soldier of Christ, you must carefully guard your steps against temptation and avoid all positions of compromise. 
Also, being watchful in the New Testament is often linked to prayer. Consider Christ's instructions to His disciples on the night of His arrest. Remember, they were all in the garden. And what did He ask of them? Pray. Watch and pray. And what did they do? They fell asleep. And what, and what happened as a subsequent of their lack of prayer? They failed, right? They failed. They, they fell to temptation. They ran from Christ. They disowned Him. They abandoned Him. Praying that God will protect you from the temptation and deliver you from evil can't be divorced from the pursuit of personal holiness. That means you should never provide your flesh with an opportunity to tempt you. If thoughts of sexual immorality are a struggle for you, beware of things that excite that lust. Music, books, magazines, television, or of course the internet. We stay away from those things. Another thing we must do is to train our minds. The battle begins where? In our minds. That's the prime target of our enemy. So cast down every argument and take every thought captive to what? The obedience of Christ. We take those thoughts captive. Consider the alternative. You, you either take sinful thought captives, sinful thoughts captive, or be taken captive by those sinful thoughts. One or the other. God has given us a sound mind. You can successfully combat wayward thoughts, and when they assault your mind and threaten to undo you, you can have victory. Scripture tells us the steadfast of mind will keep you in perfect peace because He trusts in you. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Colossians 3. Philippians 4 tells us whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, what? Dwell on these things. Think on these things. Train your mind in these things. Do you constantly set your mind on those attributes of Christ? Or do base earthly thoughts occupy your mind and your thoughts? Contemplate the things of the Spirit. Train your mind in godliness. Also, we must discipline our bodies. The first is the mind, but it, where does it go from there? It goes to our bodies. The fight against sin includes bodily discipline and gaining control over the physical realm. Again, remember the point. You're not victims. You're not out there on your own and just completely unable to, to deliver yourself from sin's sway. You have the power. The Spirit has overcome. Note the importance of Paul placed on bodily self-control when he drew an analogy from the athletic games in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. He literally says he beats himself up. He blackens his own eye in order to, to gain control over himself. How many times have you done that? Have you been being drawn away and tempted and pulled into a sin and you just literally have to grab yourself and pull yourself away? That's what Scripture tells us to do. Whenever we're tempted with sin, we do what Joseph did. We run. We don't sit around and try to negotiate or try to win them over to Christ. We run. We get away. 
Paul thought like a man in a boxing match. He ran like a man in, who was in a marathon. He battled fatigue and frustration by pressing forward and keeping his eyes on the prize, which is Jesus Christ. Paul understood what was at stake and trained himself accordingly. You must make your body your slave. We are slaves of Christ, but you must treat yourself as if you were a slave. Resist these sinful impulses and train yourself to say no. Many, sustained, many sinful habits are sustained by what is called muscle memory. It's what allows you to tie your shoes or to type without looking. You do it so often that you just naturally become second nature to you. You don't even think about it. But you, so, so we can't ignore that principle. So, so what can we do? We give our muscles new memories. That's the put-off, put-on dynamic. We identify these sinful habits and we must, we must slay them. We must take radical steps, as Jesus told us, to cut them off, to get rid of them. But in order to protect ourselves from falling right back into them, we must replace those muscle memories with new memories, with godliness, with righteousness. Bring, it, bring your bodies into submission. And finally, a very important thing is that we must pursue Christ-centered relationships within the local church. If you're going to prepare for war, you'd better find a worthy comrade to fight alongside you. Someone to warn you of impending danger, push you out of harm's way, and remind you of your marching orders. Consider this warning from Hebrews 3. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see what he's saying there? How do we take care that, that an, an evil, unbelieving heart not fall, away, fall upon us, that we, that we not fall away? How do, we, how do we guard against that? We encourage one another day after day. That's what we're here to do. Hebrews 10.25 says not to forsake the assembling of the saints. Why? Because we need more money, because we need more people to serve. What, is that, what does that verse tell us? Not to forsake the assembling of, of the saints as is custom. But what? Encouraging one another. Because the day draws near. We need encouragement. We need steadfastness. We need help to think through these things, to remember that we are, we are slaves of Christ and that Christ has conquered our sin. When we're in the midst of a battle, we forget those things, right? It's natural. We're weary. We lose hope. We don't... We tend to not want to persevere. And so how do, we, how do we not fall and completely be destroyed? There's one right there beside us picking us up. Just as the imagery of Moses, as I talked about a while ago, he had those two guys beside him holding his arms up. That's what we're here to do. We're here to support each other in our battle against sin. And there are no, there are no um, spectators in this war. If you're a Christian, you're on the front lines. You don't have a rear area job. You know, in, in war, some people actually got to stay. They never ever, actually ever saw battle. They were in a rear area somewhere. But in this battle, we're all foot soldiers on the front lines. All of us. We're there every single day. 
We don't get any vacation time. We don't get any furloughs. We're there every day, and the enemy is right before us every day, hurling his darts at us. And if we begin to retreat back, the way to help that is for the others to stand alongside and grab them, sometimes actually having to tackle them if need be in order to keep them from destroying our lives. And so we need each other. So these are just a few practical measures we can take to prepare ourselves for the battle that we are all in. God has granted us victory in this war against sin, but we must engage in the battle. So first, we must understand our position as a Christian. You are in Christ, united to Him through faith. He already triumphed over sin, and His victory becomes your victory. We must weaken sinful habits and strengthen righteous behavior. Starve out sin, cut off all provision, lay it aside like an old, worn-out garment, and replace it with righteous, godly behavior. We must fill our minds with Scripture. If we don't have a weapon, we're going to be a useless soldier. And we must learn how to wield that weapon. It is a powerful weapon. So let it saturate your mind and control your affections and determine the course of your life. And then we just, as we just said, we must prepare for battle. Sin has waged war on the souls of men. And for the regenerate in particular, <coughs> those who profess to be saved, there is no neutral place. There is nowhere to hide for a time from sin and its evils. You don't get a break. You can't hide. Every day, every moment, every moment even, sin is at work waging war on the members of our bodies. If we are not in the daily practice of mortifying sin by the Spirit, again, realize that very important truth that the Spirit is doing the work. He, or He's the power behind the work. You are actually having to do it, but the Spirit is empowering you and granting you to, to be able to do it. So if we're not doing this, if we're not mortifying sin by the Spirit, it is very conceivable that sin will gain such a foothold in our lives and direct us to do things that we never thought we would do. Don't ever say you would never do something. Don't ever say that. Every one of us are capable of doing the most heinous things that we have ever witnessed on the planet. We all have the roots of being Osama bin Laden, if I could say it that way. All of us have the same root in us that could, that could have taken us to the same place that he was taken. We all have that ability. And so either we are killing sin or it is going to be killing us. There is no third option, as many suppose, that if you just stop pursuing Christ and think of yourself as neither progressing nor backsliding, what are you actually doing? You're backsliding. You don't get to stop. You're in a river. You ever swam in a river? When you swam against the current, what happens? Well, if you've you got to swim hard and you might make some progress. You're making some progress, but what happens if you stop? You're going back. You take a, just a minute breather, you're going to lose that, that, that amount of space that you've made up. You've got to be going against the river. Sin is so deceitful that just like Novocaine, it numbs our souls to the injury it is actually inflicting on us when we cannot feel the damage it is causing to our souls. If every day we are not pursuing the mortification of sin in our lives, it is harming our souls whether we see it or not. Let me invite you, and this is the last thing I'm going to look at, in Matthew chapter 7. Because I realized that all of us in here 
most of us in here are probably are professing believers. And maybe there are some in here who have never professed belief in Christ, who have never placed their faith in Christ, and who don't, do not understand this issue of, uh, of sin. You, there's no struggle there. Well, I'll, I'll have some words for you, but I also have some words for those of us in here who have professed faith in Christ, but this is not the way of our life. We don't take the sin in our lives seriously. We don't have that battle going on in our lives. We're not crying out like Paul. The things that I wish I could do, that's what I... The, the things I should be doing, that's what I... That's, the things that I'm not doing, that's what I should be... Say it. Say it for me. There you go. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do, do, do I shouldn't do. That's what, that's what should be the cry of our hearts, right? But um, let's be honest. There are some of us in here, statistically speaking, that probably don't have that lifestyle. It's foreign to us. I want to read this. Again, this is in the same context in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus was teaching that we heard from Matthew chapter 5 when He told us about cutting off our hand and our foot and tearing out our eye. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says there in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, we've all read that passage many times, right? But I want, to, I want you to key in on that one thing that he says. He says, I never knew you, you what? Workers of lawlessness. These are the very people who were crying out, we did all these things in your name. We thought, they're surprised. They're like, what? I cannot enter into heaven? I'm one of yours. To put it in the modern day vernacular, I went to church every Sunday. I'm, I'm a member of a church. I even went to Sunday school. I went to VBS. I taught Sunday school. I'm even a pastor. But some of those people who will cry, cry out those things on the last day, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, we know that Jesus is omniscient. He knows everyone. He knows our names. But when He says, I never knew you, He's saying, I never had an intimate relationship with you. You're not one of mine. And so why did He say that? Because they were doing, they were what? Even they do, they, they did all these things outwardly. They did all these religious things. What were, what was the characteristic of their life? They were workers of lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It's sin. And so these are people who on the surface look very religious. But inside they, were, they had dead men's bones, as Christ talked about the Pharisees. So we need to take this issue of sin in our lives very seriously because as Jesus said when He was telling us to cut off, to maim ourselves in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, He's saying that is literally going to make the difference between whether you enter the kingdom of heaven or not. If we don't enter in, we literally are all going to enter into heaven with maimed bodies. We're going to be maimed and crippled as we enter the kingdom of heaven. But there is so much more to gain by that. You're not lo- we're not losing anything. And so we need to take this issue of killing sin in our lives because your conscience bears witness against you every day what the sin is in your life. And you know what it is. And so we need to be taking it seriously. We need to be cutting it out. 
Make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll close with a quote from John Owen. He says, How can we possibly believe the promises concerning heaven, immortality, and glory when we do not believe the promises concerning our present life? And how can we be trusted when we say we believe these promises but make no effort to experience them ourselves? It is just here that men deceive themselves. It is not that they do not want the gospel privileges of joy, peace, and assurance, but they are not prepared to repent of their evil attitudes and careless lifestyles. Some have even attempted to reconcile these things and ruined their souls. But without the diligent exercise of grace of the grace of obedience, we will never enjoy the graces of joy, peace, and assurance. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Let's pray. Father, we cry out to you tonight, today, Father, for the grace of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives to help us to slay this evil of sin in our bodies. And Father, I pray that each one of us will do that heart check Even now, Father, You are beginning to work in our consciences and our hearts to examine our lives to see whether we be of the faith. And Father, I pray that You would give us all the grace to overcome that sin, to take radical steps to defeat sin in our lives, to make no provision for the flesh. We ask You, God, that You would teach us how to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would yearn for the the Word, for the sword of the Spirit, that we can slay these sins in our lives. We cry out for grace to do this. We give You the glory, and we long for the day, Father, when our flesh will be set aside and we will be enter into the joy of our Master. And that will be when the, when the battle will end. But, Father, today, help us to wage war against the enemy of our souls, our own flesh and the devil. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.